this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 9, Louise Campbell's session asking whether we are making appropriate use of liver nurses and advanced nursing professionals in Nash patient management and education. In this conversation, the group considers ways to reach and educate patients earlier in the disease process. These range from collaborations with other specialties to use of group sessions and or standard recordings to provide education. The common theme is the need for collaboration between different kinds of care providers with direct and indirect access to fatty liver patients. If we are to drive earlier treatment and education to minimize transplants, cancer, and deaths in the coming NASH pandemic, nurses have a critical role to play. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Stephen Harrison. It highlights for me, as I sit back on the heels of the, the Maestro NAFL data that was reported this morning from the first phase three trial with a non-invasive entry point and a non-invasive exit point, is we're getting closer and closer to our first treatment for NASH. And in your neck of the woods, what that means is very likely less liver cancer if we can get the appropriate treatment into the right hands. And we look forward three to five years down the road, and we should should leave a big fat dent on the planet in the name of hepatocellular carcinoma, at least secondary to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That's a big, audacious, hairy goal, but I think it is potentially achievable. And as we begin to craft the narrative around disease awareness and education, I haven't considered the nurse specialist in that paradigm. We talk a lot about physicians talking to other physicians and physicians talking to patients and physicians talking to payers and legislatures, but not making a combined effort with our nurse experts in this regard. And I think it's absolutely critical because, as you mentioned, we're only one person. We're only one specialty group, and we need to combine forces. We need. It's like in the military, as I mentioned before. We're not just the infantry. We're the artillery and the Air Force and everybody coming together, and that's how you win a battle right? The Air Force can't win a battle until they put boots on the ground, right? So the doctors can't win it alone. The nurses can't win it alone. We're going to have to do this collectively. In fact, I'm often wondering now, what else, what other groups are we leaving out that we need to bring into this discussion to help us kind of turn the tide on disease awareness and education? Well, you're a big advocate of the podiatrist. I am a huge advocate of the podiatrist. My eyes were open when I went to a primary care office to recruit for fatty liver patients for clinical trials. And the primary care docs were running around. They were running late. So I'm just sitting there talking to whoever comes in the door, offering them, you know, something to eat, a sandwich for lunch, and tell me about yourself. And this lady walks in and says, you don't want to talk to me. I'm just a podiatrist. I said, well, that doesn't matter. Tell me what you do. And she goes, well, I do. I actually do have a question. If you're a liver doctor, I see lots of diabetic foot ulcers and I see lots of people with toe fungus and I want to prescribe Lamisil for them, but I can't until I check their liver enzymes and I check them and they're often very elevated, particularly my diabetic patients. And I don't know what to do with them or where to send them. I'm like, well, you're, you're the exact person I need to be talking to. You're seeing the tip of the spear here. You're you're the folks that we need to be educating. So I wonder, are there other medical camps that we're leaving out? I mean, we talk about obesity clinics and we talk about cardiology clinics and endocrine clinics. My guess is we probably should be including GYN clinics. I mean, you know, how many 
women get their primary care from an OBGYN and they don't know how to, to manage fatty liver or even have a conversation with the patient about fatty liver. How many of those patients have polycystic ovarian syndrome like the case we talked about today when we first started talking and the link between PCOS, diabetes, and fatty liver. So there's so much we can do, but I think it gets back to the two pillars, the two foundational pillars of education, being the doctor and the nurse going out collectively and developing content and developing strategies for reaching the masses. And at the end of the day, I think that will be a positive feedback loop to you on the ward in managing these people in your particular situation. Pam O'Donoghue. There has to be trust as well. There really does have to be a lot of trust between the physicians and the nurses. I didn't just walk into the Royal Free and suddenly set up Serafina Clinic. It took years of working with those consultants for them to trust me, for me to trust them, for them to allow me to do things like that, if I'm being honest. And, you know, even with that clinic, I remember Professor Mayer saying, we will give this a go. This is a pilot for six months and I need audited outcomes. I need to know that this works and it's better for the patients. So close working relationships, trust, audited outcomes, it all needs to be measured. So the physicians feel safe as well. I know his Historically, we've proven we can do things really well, but these are complex patients. There has to be a a trusted working relationship to move forward as well. Louise Campbell. But what was interesting on what you said there and linking into what Stephen was saying, if I hear it right, there may be the opportunity to have videos in diabetic clinics about fatty liver disease or polycystic ovary disease clinics. And actually, rather than necessarily try to break the system, because we get a lot of pushback with diabetes care and cardiovascular, but if we had a generic type system where we could show a video, if you've been diagnosed with this, link into this, we could recruit for trials. People get better information, but it also leads us on to we can share those competencies that you've designed because yes they're British centric but they can be utilized in any part of the world you can have a video that's saying you can have consultations now Pam was right and we've discussed a lot on the podcast we need to use new utilization of technologies and things like that so I'm sure Catherine you've done some remote work in and out of the prisons do you do it remotely now do you has COVID changed how you particularly deliver that Catherine Jack some of my other colleagues do some of the prison clinics on a more regular basis and And over time, they've developed some really good working relationships with prison nurses. So once people are tested and and diagnosed, the the conversation then happens between the prison nurse and my colleagues. And then we can arrange, discuss, get the baseline data that we need and information, discuss it at our multidisciplinary team, and then organise for the prescription and the drugs to be dispensed and, and taken to the prison. And often prison clinics take place in person with a nurse going in to actually see somebody and take the fibrous and have a complete conversation. But there are times, particularly during COVID, where we haven't been able to actually go into prison because they've really needed to reduce footfall in the establishments. It makes it very difficult to actually see or speak to the people concerned. But because we've built up good relationships over the years with the nursing team there, it's like anything, when you've got good rapport with colleagues in different departments, everything follows quite smoothly. So we have managed that. One thing we have noticed, though, is going on of a very slight tangent, is that although you know, there's three main causes of liver disease with alcohol, fat and methaviruses. There is significant overlap between all three. And certainly with a lot of the patients I see with hepatitis B, for example, I see people and they've got elevated 
JLT, but they've also got a BMI of 34. And I'm thinking, well, you know, there's there's a good possibility here that the raised transaminases are not just down to the virus beginning to break through, but down to fatty liver. And so we're needing to assess people differently rather than simply go down the route of offering tenofovir or, or another therapy for the hepatitis B. So everything is very interlinked and we need that strong recognition, I think, as well. Do you have a fatty liver disease clinic in the prison or is it purely viral? You're there with the fibre scan machine. Is it something you could develop? We've not got anyone doing a specific fatty liver disease clinic at the moment, but it's on the cards. Certainly in Nottingham, the consultants set up a pathway a few years ago now to encourage GPs to refer people in with certain criteria for screening. And this has taken off to the extent that we have um, quite a lot of waiting lists now and we have a lot of people being ready, being scanned on a regular basis. And I've been involved with doing some of those scanning clinics, which are a great nurse-led intervention opportunity because I can scan people, tell them that they, you know, they may not have cirrhosis, but they might have a fibre scan of 10 and a very high CAP score for fat. And they're also type 2 diabetic or they've got polycystic ovary disease um, and a very elevated BMI. And it's an opportunity to have a very holistic type health education conversation. And it's delivered as a brief intervention. We're not there for hours talking to them. But being able to tell people individually, look, these are your results and this is the problem and this, this is the risk you're pushing yourself at. That's what nursing's about. It's that health promotion. And we are actually identifying people who've got cirrhosis in those clinics who are previously not decompensated and they're not known to us. So we are able to then bring them into the consultant clinics for a proper workup and review. So it's definitely worth doing. Pam O'Donoghue. Michelle might probably be able to comment on this. Where are we at with the universities? Because obviously now fatty liver and cirrhosis is big news. We're in an epidemic and 40-50% of the population is overweight and are these combined figures. But does that guarantee us more time with the universities for nursing students or, or not? No. Michelle Clayton. Well, I can only speak about the UK. Each university in the UK decides what their nursing curriculum is that matches the NMC standards. It will depend on where the strengths lie with the lecturers. So some places will offer liver, some will not. The majority do not. Realistically, even to tackle this for future workforce, again, we need to get back to that public health population level. It needs to be in people's psyche. People think about cardiovascular health, people think about caring for people with diabetes, etc. And those are very strong public health themes. So we've really got to work at the fact of making liver more sexy in terms of, of public health, because that's what we always have struggled with, that traditionally it's been a bit more of a niche subject, whereas now actually not recognising it earlier from a population level is leading to these vast numbers of people that are now developing liver disease through diabetes, obesity, co-common diseases. We've really got to get it on the agenda and there's a lot of work in the UK around raising the awareness in government through the Houses of Parliament etc. They're doing the Sound the Alarm campaign which is really trying to demonstrate there is this massive problem but actually when you look at things these problems are replicated across 
most uh, countries of the world. It doesn't matter if it's Europe or whether it's now in China. There are very, very obese people because of the behavioural change. We've really got to get to grips with this sort of prevention because, you know, that old adage, prevention is better than cure. And we've really got to go towards that at a population level. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week to look at different estimates of the size and structure of the NAFL and NASH populations in the U.S., U.K., and Germany, and to ask what we can infer from these different estimates about the scope of the disease today. Until then, keep your distance, stay safe, enjoy the weather, whatever it is, as best you can, and we look forward to seeing you soon on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. Stay safe, surf on. Bye-bye now.